Hello everyone, this is Rabbi Michael Hatton, and I would like to welcome you back to TanakhStudy.com. Today's reading is a continuation of the story of the battle against Midian, chapter 31, verses 13 through 54. We can divide up today's reading into three smaller sections. In the first, Moshe commands the commanders of the army to kill all of the male children and all of the women old enough to have had relations. In addition, the Israelite soldiers are to purify themselves from Tum'ah, from ritual defilement, from having come in contact with human corpse Tum'ah. In the second section, verses 21 through 24, Chukata Torah, a statute of the Torah, is introduced, and it concerns the special process by which vessels of metal taken in the spoils are to be made fit for use. In the third section, which is the largest, verses 25 through 54, the spoils are divided between the people of Israel and the army of Israel, and a percentage is given to the Kohanim on the one hand and the Leviim on the other. The section concludes with the story of the personal donation of gold jewelry taken from the spoils by the army commanders. Recall, last time we spoke about the 12,000 men drawn from each of the 12 tribes who attacked Midian. The backdrop to the battle was the story of the daughters of Midian, especially Kozbi, the daughter of Tsur, the Midianite chieftain, who had enticed the people of Israel into sexual immorality and idolatry at the very end of Parshat Balak. In that episode, the people succumbed to the wiles of Baal Peor and 24,000 Israelites died by plague. Now, vengeance is executed upon the Midianites and they are defeated in battle. We begin with verse number 13. After the army of Israel has returned from battle victorious, heavy with captives and spoils of animals and goods, they bring those things to Moshe and Elazar, the priest and the congregation of Israel. And verse 13 relates, Moshe, Elazar the priest, and all of the chieftains of the congregation went out to meet them outside of the encampment. The commentaries explain that they were they were they needed to leave the encampment in order to meet them, Mipne. Tumat Nefesh, because even as the army of Israel had defeated the foe, they had become Tameh 
or ritually defiled in the process, having come in contact with human corpses. War, of course, may be sometimes necessary and even obligated, but even so, death and killing are regarded as defiling pursuits. Verse number 14. Vayiktsof Moshe al pikudei hechayel, sarei ha'alafim v'sarei ha'meot ha'baim mitzvah ha'milchama. Moshe became angry over the commanders of the forces, the chieftains of the thousands, the officers of the hundreds who had returned from the army that had battled. Vayomer alehem Moshe hachiitem kol nekeva. Moshe said to them, Have you allowed all of the females to live? Henhena hayu livnei Yisrael bidvar bilam limsor ma'al badunai al devar peor vatehi hamagefa ba'adat adunai. Behold, they were for the people of Israel a source of transgression and trespass against God through the agency of Bil'am concerning the matter of Peor. And there was a plague which was unleashed against the congregation of God. This verse, of course, provides us with the clearest indication yet that Bil'am ben Beor had been personally involved in the plot to undermine the people of Israel by causing them to stray after Baal Peor. The word Ma'al, the people were guilty of Ma'al against God, can mean trespass, as it does in Sefer Vayikra when a person misuses temple property. It can mean deceit, as the Kar Targum translates it, Shakar. It can mean iniquity, and it can mean treachery, as it does in the story of the Sota, who Ma'ala Ma'al. Effectively, the Torah is indicating that idolatry, in this case the worship of Baal Peor, is an act of deceit, trespass, iniquity, and treachery against God. Moshe continues, verse 17, Ve'ata hirgu chol zachar bataf v'chol isha yoda'at ish lemishkav zachar harogu. And now kill all the male children and any woman old enough to have relations with a man, to sleep with a man, put to death. Verse 18. But all of the children that are female who have not known relations with a male you may preserve alive for yourselves. This harsh directive to kill the male children and the adult women is in contrast to the typical provisions for war which are recorded in the 20th chapter of Sefer Devarim. In that context, the Torah says, that when you wage war against a city, 
and they fight you in return, when you conquer them, you may put together all of the male combatants, but the women and the children, male or female, may not be put to death. They may be taken captive. In contrast to that provision, the Midianite women and the male children are put to death. Presumably, this is because of the particular circumstances associated with Baal Peor. As Moshe himself puts it, the women were the ones who took such an active role in leading the people of Israel astray. So for that reason, in this particular situation, a harsher form of vengeance is called for. Pasuk Yotet continues, Ve'atem, Hanu, Michutz Lamachane Shivat Yamim, Kol Horeg Nefesh, Vechol Nogea Bechalal, Titratu Bayom Hashilishi Uvayom Hashivii, Atem Ushivichem. As for you, encamp outside of the encampment for seven days. Whoever has killed a person, whoever has touched a dead body, must be sprinkled with the ashes and the water of the red hayfair on the third day and on the seventh day, both you as well as your captives. Any garment, any vessel made out of leather, made out of goatskin, made out of wood, must be so purified. This, of course, is in perfect accord with what was recorded in Bimidbar chapter 19, the beginning of Parshat Chukat, which recommended a special ceremony for the purification from corpse defilement involving the ashes of the Paraduma and spring water, which are sprinkled on the third and seventh day. Our section now continues with a unique provision. Verse 21. Elazar the priest said to the combatants from the army that had returned from battle, this is the statute of the Torah which God commanded Moshe. This, of course, is a direct link linguistically with Chukat HaTorah in chapter 20, the provisions of the red hayfair, which is described using precisely that term. Verse 22 reports, As for the gold and the silver, the copper, the iron, the tin, and the lead. These five metals are known to us from other places in Tanakh, especially the first four of them, sorry, these six metals are known to us from other places in Tanakh, especially the first four, gold, silver, copper, and iron. The last two are a little more rare. Oferet, translated as lead, occurs in Shirat Hayam, 
in Shemot chapter 15, when Moshe and the people of Israel describe the Egyptian forces that sink into the depths, they proclaim, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. And lead, of course, is a very heavy metal. Bedil is the most unusual metal in the list. It occurs rarely in Tanakh. It's understood to be tin, which is a light-colored and relatively light metal. Sometimes Bedil and Nechoshet tin and copper are combined to form bronze. So these particular metals are now singled out for special treatment. Verse number 23. All things that can pass through the fire must be passed through the fire in order to make them pure, but they must be sprinkled with the waters of sprinkling. Whatever cannot pass through the fire shall be passed through water. You will wash your clothing on the seventh day and you will become pure and then you may enter into the camp. In outline, these provisions seem similar to what was recorded in Parshat Chukat, the statute of the Torah, concerning the ashes of the red hayfer, but in that context, no mention was made of any fire being employed in the process of purification. Chazal understood that in fact what is being referred to in our section is not purification from corpse defilement, but rather from hechsher migi'ulei nochrim, which is to say vessels that had been used to prepare food which was not kosher or fit for consumption, had to be purified by fire in order to make them fit for use. The Ramban says concerning this tradition in our context, this is emet beli safik. This is undoubtedly the true meaning of the verses. The rabbis distill the principle of hechsher kelim, of making vessels fit for use when they have been previously used in the preparation of non-kosher ingredients. They distill the principle of making them fit for use into three words, kivvol'o kach polto, which is to say, in the same manner that a material, the material of a vessel, absorbs the forbidden matter, in that very manner does it release it. Therefore, vessels of metal, which are used for cooking over fire, in order for them to become fit for kosher use, must be passed through fire, and then they become kasher. So what it's being referred to in the context, first of all, is that the vessels of metal, those made out of gold or silver or copper, iron, tin, or lead, whatever is used in fire, must be passed through fire in order to make it fit, to, in order to make it tahor. So that is the first 
step in the process of making the spoils fit for use. The second stage, again in verse 23, which means on the most simple level, water of sprinkling is presumably the water of sprinkling referred to earlier in chapter 20 in chapter 19 associated with the ashes of the red hayfair. So not only do we have to deal with the non-kosher matter which was absorbed in the metal vessel, but also with the fact that it became tamay because it was in contact with a human corpse. Therefore, the process of making it fit for use must involve two things. Number one, to remove the non-kosher matter absorbed in the material of the vessel. This is done through fire. And secondly, to remove the corpse defilement, the tum'ah, and this is done through the sprinkling of the ashes of the para aduma. The rabbis, however, added a third dimension to the discussion, and they understood that what we were referring to was also an idea of immersing the vessels in a mikvah. They understood the term not only to mean the sprinkling with the ashes and water associated with the red hayfair, but the immersion in a body of water which would have been fit for anida, for a menstruant, menstruant woman to do her tevila. In other words, vessels that have come from a non-Jewish source that have been made by non-Jewish hands, must be immersed in a mikvah before they can be used in a Jewish context. This is referred to in rabbinic literature as tevilat kelim. And tevilat kelim is a process associated only with vessels made out of metal on a Torahitic level at least. The rabbis later added a second category of vessels for Tevilat Kelim, which are vessels made out of glass. So, in order to summarize, we might say that now that the Israelite army has returned with spoils procured from the Midianites, those spoils, those vessels, must undergo three separate processes in order to make them fit for use. Number one, they must undergo hechsher, which is to say some sort of application of heat. If they were used for cooking non-Jewish food, then they must be boiled out with water over the fire. Number two, the vessels must undergo sprinkling with the ashes of the red hayfair in order to render them tahor or ritually fit. And number three, because they came from a non-Israelite origin, they must be immersed in a mikvah and undergo tevilat kelim. By way of comparison, if one were to purchase a new vessel from a non-Jewish source today, a vessel used for food preparation, and that vessel was made out of metal or glass, it would have to undergo tevilah in a mikvah. If one were to purchase a used metal vessel from a non-Jewish source, which is to say used for the preparation of non-kosher food, depending on the material and assuming that it could undergo a kushering process, that would also be required and that would require the application of heat.
Obviously, the third process, which is spoken of in our section today, the sprinkling with the ashes of the red hayfair, is currently not relevant in the absence of a temple. Our section continues with verse 25. Vayomer Adonai al Moshe Limor, God said to Moshe, saying, Sa et rosh malkoach hashevi ba'adam uva behema atave elazar hakohen verashe avot ha'ida. Take a count of the animals and the captives, both people and animals, you and Elazar the priest, and all of the heads of the clans of the congregation. Verse 27. Vechatsita et hamalkoach ben tofse hamelchama hayotzim latzava uven kol ha'eda. You shall divide these spoils up between those that seized the moment and went into battle and the rest of the congregation that remained behind. So here, the Torah provides for the division of the spoils equally between the fighters that won the battle and the people that stayed behind eagerly awaiting their return. Of course, this moment reminds us on some level of Avraham Avinu's battle against the four mighty Eastern kings. After he defeated them in Genesis chapter 14, he refused to take any of the spoils himself, but insisted that his allies, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, be given their share of the spoils, even perhaps if they did not actively participate in the battle as he did, but remained behind in order to help, in order to provide, and in order to guard the equipment. A more explicit example of this division is recorded in Sefer Shumuel Aleph, chapter Lamed, chapter 30. After David and his men inflict a crushing defeat on the on the Amalekite marauders who had attacked Tziklag, David divides the spoils between his fighters on the one hand and those men on the other hand who became exhausted and could not continue the pursuit but instead returned to watch over the equipment. Even though some of his fighting men protested and were unwilling to share with those that remained behind, David made it clear that it was not an option but to share with all of the people. As he put it in verse number 24, chapter 30, Shmuel Aleph, Ki kechelek hayored bamelchama uchechelek hayoshev al hakelim yachtav yachloku the share of those that go into battle and the share of those that sit on the baggage to watch over the equipment will be the same. They will share equally. This is, of course, a noble recognition, as it is in our Parsha as well, that everyone has contributed to the victory, whether through actively pursuing the foe or by providing support and remaining behind. Verse 28. 
מן האדם ומן הבקר ומן החמורים ומן הצאן. You will raise up a portion to God from the men of the battle who had gone out to the army, one out of five hundred, from the captives, from the cattle, from the donkeys, and from the sheep. From their half you shall take it, and you shall give it to Elazar the priest as an offering made up to God. Effectively, in these verses, what is indicated is the spoils will be divided equally between those that entered into battle and the people of Israel that remained behind. Once those spoils are divided equally, the soldiers that went into battle will take one five hundredth of the total and turn it over to Elazar and the priests as an offering made to God. Pasuk Lamed, Umimachatzit bene Israel, Tikach echadachuz minachamishim, Min haadam, Min habakar, Minachamorim, Umin hatson mikola behema, Venatata otam lalviim, Shamare mishmeret mishkan adunai. From the half of the people of Israel, you shall take one out of fifty from the human captives, from the cattle, the donkeys, the sheep, all of the animals. You shall give these over to the Levites, those that guard the guarding of God's mishkan, of God's tabernacle. So from the half of the spoils assigned to the people of Israel, one fiftieth is to be separated, and that is to be given to the Levites. So once again, from the half given over to the soldiers, one five hundredth, is given to the Kohanim. From the half given over to the people of Israel, one fiftieth is given to the Levi'im. This amount is referred to in the text as a meches, a set amount. In modern Hebrew, of course, meches means a duty or an amount of money which must be paid for customs. These proportions, a fiftieth for the Levi'im, a five hundredth for the Kohanim, are familiar once we recognized the ratio between them. The Levite's portion effectively is ten times larger than that of the Kohanim and recalls the general provision to surrender one-tenth of one's crops to the Levi'im as Ma'asir Rishon. The text will now work its way through the numbers in order to indicate that the ratios, the proportions, the percentages are separated correctly. The term for one fiftieth or one five hundredth is called an achuz, literally that which is grasped or taken out of the larger amount. And in modern Hebrew, achuz, of course, means a percent, something taking out of the hundred. Verse number 31, Vaya'as Moshe velazar kohen kasher tziva adunai et Moshe. Moshe and Elazar the priest did as God had commanded Moshe. Vayihi hamalkoach, yeter habaz asher bazazu am hatzava, tzon, sheshmiot elef, vishivim elef, vachameshet alafim. And it was the spoils 
the animals which the army had taken as spoils consisted of sheep numbering 675,000. Cattle numbering 72,000. Donkeys numbering 61,000. And as for the human captives from the women that had not known relations with a man, all of these totaled 32,000. So those are our basic numbers, and now we will divide those in half, turning over half to the soldiers and half to the people of Israel, and then taking out our percentages one five hundredth from the soldiers' spoils, one fiftieth from the Israelites' spoils. Verse 36. The half, the portion associated with those who went out to battle, consisted of sheep numbering three hundred and thirty-seven thousand five hundred, which is of course exactly half of the larger number indicated before, six hundred and seventy-five thousand. The set amount given to God, which is to say to the priests from the sheep, numbered, 657, which is one five hundredth of that half. The cattle numbered 36,000, and the amount, the set amount given to God to the priests numbered 72. The donkeys numbered 30,500, and the set amount given to God was 61. And as for human beings, 16,000, and the set amount given to God was 32 people. Moshe turned over the set amount offered up to God, to Elazar the priest, as God had commanded Moshe. So that is our first accounting. The amounts taken from the spoils of the soldiers, where the percentage involved is one out of 500. We go on with verse number 42. From the half given to the people of Israel, which Moshe had divided from those that had gone into battle. The half assigned to the congregation from the sheep equaled 337,500. Of course, it's going to be the same number as the half given to those that had fought in the battle. And as for cattle, it was 36,000. 
וחמורים, שלושים אלף וחמש מאות, and donkeys, thirty thousand and five hundred. ונפש אדם, שישה עשר אלף, and human captives, sixteen thousand. So all of those numbers are exactly the same numbers that we started with when we calculated the half assigned to the soldiers that had participated in the battle. But whereas one five-hundredth was separated from their portion to be given to the Kohanim, now one fiftieth, or ten times as much, will be separated from the portion given to the people of Israel to be assigned to the Levites. Verse number 47. Moshe. Moshe took from the half of the people of Israel one fiftieth of the total from the human captives and the animals, and he gave these to the Levites. Those that guard over the Mishkan of God as God had commanded Moshe. So we don't get the same breakdown as we got earlier, but the numbers can be easily calculated. Our section now concludes with a special contribution, voluntary contribution, offered by the commanders of the Israelite forces who had led them into battle. Verse number 48. Those commanders which were responsible for the thousands of the army approached Moshe, the officers of the thousands and the officers of the hundreds. Well, if there were 12,000 fighting men, that must mean 12 officers over the thousands and 120 officers over the hundreds or 132 commanders in total. Verse 49. They said to Moshe, Your servants have counted the men of war who have returned with us and none of them are lacking. None of them are missing. Either this means, miraculously, there were no Israelite casualties in the battle whatsoever, which is of course possible if the Israelite army was well equipped and the nomadic Midianites were completely outgunned. Some of the commentaries understand it to mean, based on Chazal, lo nifkad mimenu ish, doesn't mean that there were no Israel, Israelite ca ca casualties in battle, but rather that none of the Israelites had strayed after idolatry or done any sort of transgression against God in the pursuit of the enemy. Verse number 50. Vanakrev et korban Adunai. We have drawn near with a sacrifice and offering to God. Any man who found a vessel of gold, a brace, a, an armlet, a bracelet, a ring, an earring, or a chumaz, in order to atone for our souls, before God. This is a lovely list of biblical jewelry 
The last term in the list, kumaz, is the least well understood. Shortly, I will return to a rabbinic interpretation of the term. It seems as if the commanders are now presenting a special offering of gold to God in order to atone for their souls. Verse 51. Moshe and Elazar the priest took the gold from them, any vessel which was of consequence. All of the gold which was raised up to God consisted of 16,750 shekel from the officers of the thousands and the officers of the hundreds. This is, of course, a very large amount of gold. Just by way of comparison, the total amount of gold donated by the people of Israel for the building of the Mishkan was approximately five times as much. So from this one battle against the Midianites, the people of Israel, of course, or the armed forces at least, or the commanders, the officers, actually returned home with a tremendous amount of spoils, and these are now turned over to God. The other members of the army, however, each one took the spoils for themselves. So this is a special contribution by the commanders of the army. Verse number 54, the concluding verse of the section, Moshe and Elazar the priest took the gold from the officers of the thousands and the hundreds. They brought it to the tent of meeting as a memorial for the people of Israel before God. This moment is spectacularly unusual. It is really the first time in the entire Torah that the people of Israel have taken a positive and serious initiative to make amends for their failures and to close a circle of infamy that began with their betrayal of Hashem. We recall, of course, once again, that the people of Israel succumbed to the daughters of Moab and Midian. They worshipped Baal Peor and they betrayed God and the plague broke out and cut down 24,000 of them. And usually in an episode like this in the Torah, that's as far as, as it goes. The people stray from God, they are punished, and then the story continues. This was the case in Sefer Bimidbar chapter 11 with the complainers, the Mit Onanim, who are burned by fire. It's the case with the Mit Avim, those that desired meat, who are struck down by God by a very great plague. It is the case by the Ma Pilim in the aftermath of the spies, after the decree had been pronounced that the people of Israel were not permitted to enter the land, they broke ranks and attempted to do so anyways. And it was the case in the story of Korach in chapter 16 of Bemidbar, where after Korach's demise, and clearly God had registered his displeasure over the rebels, 
the people's response was, Atem hamitem et am Hashem, you, Moshe Naharon, have killed the congregation of God. There is a bit of a turning point in Parshat Chukat, chapter 21, when the people make their way around the territory of Edom and they are attacked by the burning serpents, the Nechashim HaSirafim, for complaining. At that point, they come to Moshe and they say, Chatanu, and they are saved. In effect, what we have here is a new level of doing tshuva, of making amends. The commanders who have already triumphed over Midian desire atonement. And what they offer is all of the gold jewelry from the spoils, which is to say, those things taken from the daughters of Midian, which were the instrument for succumbing to Baal Peor. It's as if the commanders of the Israelite forces want to say, we divest ourselves of Baal Peor entirely. We want nothing more than to achieve atonement and teshuvah. Of course, we note the significant distinction. All of the earlier episodes in Sefer Bimidbar, where the people of Israel complained or otherwise betrayed God and were punished, but there was no further response on their part, referred to the story of Dor Hamidbar, the generation that had left the land of Egypt. Now that the generation is poised to enter the promised land, we see in fact that they have a completely different attitude as exemplified by the commanders in this particular moment. No wonder that Chazal have a tradition that the last article of golden jewelry in the list, the mysterious kumaz, is a golden adornment associated with sexual immorality. As if the people of Israel want to say, we recognize our failure at Baal Peor and we will have nothing of it. What therefore appeared at first sight as a dry list of biblical mathematics turns out to be a critical description of the process of making amends. The people of Israel first punish the perpetrators, the Midianites. They then offer support to the Kohanim and the Leviim in the form of the percentages. They let go even of the precious gold if it is tainted with sin. And when the Torah will, will later reflect back on these events, it will remind us of this glorious moment. In Sefer Devarim, chapter 4, Moshe will enjoin the people of Israel to observe faithfully the statutes and the laws which he will teach them in order that they might live and enter the land and possess it the land which gave, God gave to their ancestors. Enechem haraot, verse number 3 of chapter 4, Sefer Devarim, your own eye see everything that God did at Baal Peor. Every man who followed Baal Peor has been destroyed from your midst by God. Va'atem ha'devekim badunai Elohechem, chayim kulechem hayom. But those of you that cleave unto God your Lord 
are all of you alive this day?